in my job, I get to spend so much time helping people make games, which is one of the passions in my life, not just playing them, but making them. So things couldn't be better, really. To me, the games department at the National Film and Television School will always be the merry band of misfits that adopted me. Alan was the leader of this band. He used to be the head of the games development program. Here we talk about his path to the film school, his love for games, and something that still amazes me, just how vast the world of gaming is. This is People Create. How would you describe what you do? Yeah, so I would describe what I do. So um, as, you, as you know, I'm the head of games at the National Film and Television School. But to break that down into a bit more depth as to what do I do, fundamentally, my job is to help support people from all over the world who come to the NFTS to make video games. And for many of those people, they might be making a massive, massive change in their life. They might previously have been pie makers, kickboxing instructors, um, from all walks of life. And my role is to help those people in the space of two years become games developers. That's not an easy job, but it's one that I'm really passionate about because I, I'm really convinced. And one of the things that I think is incredibly beautiful about the video games industry is how open it is to people from so many walks of life. It's a place where you can, from the comfort of an office or the comfort of your own home, download tools that are completely free of charge, create amazing games, and put them out into a marketplace where they're listed side by side with billion dollar corporations. That's pretty powerful. And so my job is to help people get into that space. I should also point out over here that as a social orphan at my time at the National Film and Television School, you and the games department did adopt me. So, And, and very welcome you were, because I think the great thing as well is, is that, you know, games reaches out to so many different other areas as well, whether it's business, composing or whatever. It, it's all got so many inter important interconnections in games. And when you have that interest, you want to be a part of that industry. You want to find a way that you can actually be valued there. Um, you, you can always find a niche or a place. And so, yeah, you're very welcome at, uh, at our department. Is that what sort of fostered the interest in games for you? The openness of it all? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think the openness was a big, was a big draw. I think the other thing that was, I think the other thing that was really, really important to me was the independence that it can give to someone in their life that you potentially are in many ways blessed by going into games. You can, so long as you've got an internet connection, and so long as you've got a computer, you can download nearly all of the tools, free and open source tools, you can download them. Spend some time reading books or learning tutorials or taking a course or whatever, and find a way to build a game, put it out there and make a living from that. It was this vision that actually independently you could be anywhere you want in the world working to any time zone you want in the world and you can find a way to carve out a life for yourself independently doing what you love and as i'm sure the phrase you've heard said many times before 
is that if you can do what you love, you never work a day in your life because it's not work to you. It's just part of the automatic mode of being that you have. And games is a powerful way to do that. I think the other thing that really drew me to games is that thinking about all the games I played when I was growing up, you invite those characters and those worlds into your home, into your life. They become a deep existential part of who you are. And that's, that's a powerful voice you can have for changing people's lives, for changing people's, for changing the way society operates. You have an enormous amount of power to tell a story and to tell a message. Games are incredibly powerful for that. So those things really excited me. And I think that ultimately is what drew me to games as a medium. If I'm thinking about what I'm going to be doing with every minute of every hour, all that time, all that time in my life is non-refundable. Every moment you spend is a moment you can't get back. So I want my life to be a happy, pleasant existence. And I want that for other people too. So I think that I do want to spend my time doing things I care about as opposed to um, things I don't care about. How did you get to where you are essentially? What what was the journey that took you to being the head of games of the National Film and Television School? Yeah, okay. So I've spent, well, I think prior to being the head of games, I'd spent about 20 years, 21 years in, in the games industry, working across different video games. In the course of my career, I've worked on about 33 games, commercial games, and I've written 34 books about how to make games. So most of my career trajectory is heart and soul, 100% about I love games and I want to make games and I want to help other people make games. I think when I approached the film school, when I came to the film school, it offered me a really unique opportunity because here is this really great film school where so many creatives from all over the world come together. You have a pretty small games department. And in the space of a two-year MA, many people who have never approached games before are approaching games for the very first time in their lives. As I mentioned, you know, some of them could have been pie makers, kickboxing instructors, neuroscientists, whatever. But the key ingredient is that many people are approaching it for the very first time. And I think that offers really unique opportunities because many people who have grown up playing video games all the time develop in their mind archetypes about what games are and what games should be. And sometimes it can limit their thinking in what games can be. But when you approach games from a completely different perspective, a completely different background, you can challenge those norms. You can start to think about games from a completely different perspective. Mm. And actually, it's looking at games from a different perspective that is giving us such great titles like Untitled Goose Game, Power Wash Simulator, games where people would stand back and say, that's crazy. You can't make a game about a goat running around a farmyard or a goat running around a city. You can't do that. Well, actually, it turns out those have been really successful titles. Those people have shown if you look at games from a different perspective, really interesting things can happen. So running this course and working with so many great people, for me, was an opportunity to help not only change people's lives, but also reshape the trajectory of the games industry and encourage people to make different kinds of games. With that in mind, then, what does creativity mean to you? Yeah, well, actually, with creativity, so if we think about what does creativity mean, I suppose the first thing is, the first thing that maybe it doesn't mean so much to me is that there are, to start by saying what I think it doesn't mean, or at least what doesn't resonate so much with me, 
is the metrics many people have. They kind of look at the output of this game, this film, this society, th this or that. And they, they talk and debate about, is it creative? What does creative mean? But I actually think that to get to the root of creativity, you need to go back to some very serious existential concerns that people have in their life. Very often when you talk to people who are not in, quote, creative fields, they might often say to you, you know, I feel creatively starved. There's an itch that I need to scratch. I feel kind of suffocated in this job that's not creative. There's so much about my trajectory that I don't like. And so they want to change their careers. And very often when that change is about being creative, it reveals something. That is, there is an innate hunger in many people where they feel their voice is suppressed, that their ideas are kind of closeted up and that whatever job they're in right now is not allowing them to truly express themselves, their personality, their thoughts. There's a message that they have that's being suffocated beneath the monotony of the everyday. So I think that one of the key ingredients about creativity is that it's intimately related to power. It's intimately related to in society, what impact, what lasting, meaningful impact will I have? And that we can unleash this creativity or we can help enable all the things that come from that by helping people position themselves in life where actually they feel like they can share that voice and that what they're doing isn't inhibiting that. So I think a key ingredient for creativity a key driving factor is about authenticity, is about being heard, is about feeling like you are making a difference and can make a difference. There are many other metrics we can talk about, about is this creative, is this creative innovation? But I think most fundamentally, we have to go back to that existential concern. Are we helping enable people to have that voice? Because if we don't, then creativity dies. So ultimately, I think it's an expression of power. And hopefully, people use that power responsibly, productively, and positively in society. But, but fundamentally, I think it is an expression of power. Something that's interestingly, that's been coming up in a lot of these discussions has been the, the, the dialectic almost between the definition of creativity to the creator and right. to the audience. Hmm. Is there a difference for you if as an audience versus as someone who's made 33 games and created yeah. 34 books on games? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think fundamentally, I, I, th I think there is a huge difference. I mean, for just to give you an example, you know, I, you could make a game intending one kind of narrative. And yet so many different people in the audience could pick that apart and actually generate a very different narrative and interpret you in completely different ways. Mm -hmm. I suppose a traditional way of thinking might be that, well, it's the author who tells the story and it's the author who is authoritative. But really, I think practical day to day, that's not the case at all. I think everybody is gonna be able to generate their own interpretations, their own views of what your work stands for and what your work means. Now, of course, sometimes, a dominant narrative or a dominant consensus can emerge, 
But I think the only thing we can say about that is that it is the dominant consensus, but that doesn't make it the right one. I don't think there is a right interpretation. But I think that more importantly, in terms of creativity and in terms of inspiration, the great thing about that great variety of narratives is that they can inspire you to produce other things. But of course, the moment you produce other things, people are going to have an interpretation of that. So I think all of it is a negotiated interplay of narratives that's never ultimately going to be going to be settled. We can enjoy the act of creating and we can hope that those people who play our games, they can enjoy it too. It might be, we can't guarantee that, but we can only hope for that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty much all I have to say on that. <laughs> I am always staggered by the scale of the games industry. And it, yeah. was, it was you who, sh who had shown it to us a few months ago. Right. Uh, where if I'm not mistaken, film and TV is 100. If film and TV was a $100 billion industry, games yeah. is a $400 billion industry. Right. Yeah. Can you give us some sense of scale of well, um, how big it is? Yeah. I mean, well, to give you some ideas of scale, to put that in perspective, I mean, you're right. It, it's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. It's huge, right? It's a huge, huge industry. There's a financial size that people might want to measure it by. But there are other kinds of metrics that we can use to measure size of the industry. And even in the vast magnitude that the industry is, even within that space, there are some interesting things to note. For, for, example, for example, one statistic that whether it's exactly right, probably not, but whether it's roughly right, is that about 50% of the games industry is mobile. That is about half of the games industry is played mobile devices. That might be an iPhone, might be an Android phone, it might be a tablet. But again, it's interesting to note that the other half represents all the other consoles, PCs, and all the other kinds of things like that. So actually, the mobile space is a massive, truly massive space. I think it's roughly estimated that as of 2019, there are in excess of about 4 million uh, commercial games um, currently on the market. I think that's been the, the about 2019. I think that was accurate at the time of 2019. So since then, uh, a, a lot more every single year. Not only are more games added every year, but as you add games, you don't just compete with other contemporary games. You're competing with a legacy of many, many historical games. I think in terms of the size of game worlds, um, it's estimated that the user-created content of the game Minecraft that is people building up spaces, areas, and zones within a game world, that the estimated size of that is 9 million times the surface area of the Earth. Cool. So that within the space of a single human lifetime, we could not, in fact, explore the entirety of the Minecraft world. And I think that represents a certain enormity that we lose sight of being able to comprehend. So I think games is enormous in so many ways in that we consume them in many different ways from traditional film and TV. It's, it might not just be people sitting in front of a TV screen. It could be people looking at their mobile device, traveling to work on the train. I think also there's also the more fundamental thing that still applies to film and TV, but also applies to games. 
is that the moment you switch off the computer isn't necessarily the moment your experience ends because people talk about games. People go online, they generate fan fiction. They generate all kinds of content that centers around the experiences they've had within games. So there's a momentum that games has generated that causes that fictional space to link out into all aspects of our life. And even if you go to a games convention, very often people might turn up in an alternative form with costume and adopt a different personality. There's an alter ego as well. So I think games creates all kinds of fictions that don't just exist within the space of a screen or within the space of a headset. Yes, games is truly enormous, but I think that more importantly for the games developer is what you do within that space. The space might be incredibly enormous. There might be a lot of opportunity, but every single developer who faces the prospect of creating a game that's gonna be received by an audience, there are those key questions as to how do you stand out in that space? How do you find your identity, your voice? How do you find your audience? Why will people choose your work over all of the others? And what kind of impact do you want to have? Why are you building games? What are you making them for? All of these questions, I think, intimately relate to questions of creativity, at least in the sense of creativity as finding your voice, as being expressive of your authenticity. What this is reminding me of is the conversation I had with Julia. Right. About um, coming back to that idea of is it creative to the audience or creative to you? And where's that balance between what is creative to you versus what is creative to the audience you're thinking of supplying? It's a very interesting balance. It is. It is. I think it is. I think fundamentally, um, an important metric to be guided by is whether it is creative for you. That isn't to say that the audience is important because I think the audience is important. Mm. But if the game isn't creative in your mind, then why bother making it at all? So I think the first question has to be, is it creative for you? And by being creative for you, is this the voice you want to have? Is this the story you want to tell? Is this the narrative you want to push? Yeah. And if the answer is no, then why bother? Because actually plenty of time to be doing all kinds of other things with your time and with your energy, right? It's incredibly valuable. So you want to pick what you do wisely. Obviously, the next question then does come about in trying to imagine or picture or construct who is going to be playing this game. Who is this game for? Now, you can try to define that audience using very rigid, quantifiable metrics Mm -hmm. such as age, location. You can try to use all of those things. But I think that when you use those metrics, there's going to be a lot of really important data that you can miss. Yeah. So I think any game developer who's using only those metrics, I would just exercise caution, be careful, because maybe that's not the right way to approach things. But fundamentally, it's also how are you going to identify your audience? What... What kinds of people are these? Who are these? Where are they located? And are they like you? What do they What do they enjoy doing in their free time when they're not playing games? Trying to build up a profile of who is your game for and being true, being true to that audience. 
because I think that they can love you for, for the fact that you're talking to them rather than some generic massification. You can just talk authentically to that. And there are many games that do do that. For example, you can take House Flipper, House Flipper 2. Those games encourage people to buy a property and to sell it for a profit, you know. And Farming Simulator, all yeah. of those games have a very clear audience about who am I talking to, and they're true to that audience. And as a result, their audience love those things. What you're reminding me of is, uh, I remember listening to it or watching an interview that Rick Rubin did. And I think he he was very he was very strong in his opinion about the fact that the audience comes last, right? Because they know what's come before, but it's your job as a creative to show them what's come after or what is thereafter. Yeah, yeah. And I find that very interesting, particularly, and this is a segue uh, into, uh, particularly in the idea of how much the games industry has changed. Like when I was a kid, it was a Game Boy with one of those cartridges that went in. Right. Um, and today it's on on a phone that does a bunch of other things. Right. So as a as the head of the games program, as a mentor to people mm -hmm. who are learning this industry, say the chocolatier who you had a couple of years right. ago, how do you keep keep up with the changes? And how how can you how do you translate those changes to the people that are essentially learning from you that you're mentoring? Yeah. Well, I mean. Beyond beyond the stock answers of I talk to people in the games industry, yeah. I'm still involved with different games, I try to translate that knowledge into skills and so on. You know, all of those things, all of those things are true. But I think that there is a more fundamental feature that, that is important to this, which is I think if you're going into games, which is such a fast-moving industry that effectively you must be continually running in order to avoid to stand, just to stand still, really. Mm -hmm. So I think when you're going into an industry that's that fast moving, you can try to, you can try and probably fail to teach everybody all the technical skills that they need today and all the technical skills you think they're gonna need in the future and all the software and tools that exist. You can try and bombard them with all of that information and say, absorb that just in case you need it for a rainy day if the industry happens to change. You could do that. But I think that there's a completely different approach, which is less about the tools, the software, the skills, and is more about a state of mind, as in how do you respond to change? How do you respond to an industry that is always coming to challenge you and to challenge your comfort zone? One way to respond is through fear. And often fear leads us to closet ourselves away, to be protective of the software and the tools that we're using today, not want to give those up, to be protective and partisan about it, to close our eyes to these changes over here. All of those are less about software and tools and more about just how do we respond to change? So that's one way. Yeah. The other way is to absorb that change, to not be afraid of it, to confront it. I think there is a, an expression, um, pretty old expression, I'm not sure where it's from, but when the wind of change blows, some people build walls and some people build windmills, right? And, and so I think we should be looking to build windmills. Yeah, you, you utilize that for good. 
for something constructive. And so you take those circumstances and you develop the necessary ways of responding to it that doesn't inspire fear, nervousness, anger, all those kinds of negative emotions. So I think one of the ways we can help equip people for a technologically fast-changing field like games is more about that state of mind, about how do I, as a person in my day-to-day -day life, how do I respond to challenging change? Change that's constantly saying to me, hey, this could have an impact on the skills you're learning today. You can go and cry about it, or you can learn to adapt your skills using what you know already. It's very interesting because what you're reminding me of, and I don't know if you, you might be familiar with it, but, and again, I keep bringing up your previous students who I brought this up with on podcasts, right. but in Ben's podcast, um, one thing we ended up touching upon was the number one factor in in organization theory uh, mm -hmm. that promotes creativity within an organization is something called your orientation to change. Right. It's the way right. with it's the way in which you deal with change that is the number one factor that affects your creativity in an organization, which is essentially exactly mm -hmm. what you've said. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's I think it's critically important. I think that being I mean we can we can call that skill adaptability, but I think that I think that being adaptable is one part of it. Yes, being adaptable is maybe the behavior that we adopt. But I think that for the games industry and any tech industry to be emotionally and psychologically sustainable to you, in addition to just having adaptable behavior, you also need to find a way inwardly to reconcile yourself to the temporality of everything, to the coming and goings, to yeah. the fact that what's here today might not be here tomorrow. And you need to come to terms with that emotionally and find a place or a kind of center in which you can, I don't know if it's welcome change because maybe some changes aren't welcome, right? But it's to take that change and not let negativity overcome you because that's emotionally draining. And let's face it, who wants to go through their professional life year after year after year consumed with fear? And I think by confronting that change face on yeah. and saying that actually this is going to be okay, you can then develop more productive ways to respond to those changes. But yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, adaptability, being able to respond to change, I think it is critical to sustaining your creativity, particularly in the long term. You, you probably saw me scribble something down furiously just now. It's because I really want to, I quite like this idea of psychological sustainability. I don't know if you just threw it out there as like putting two words together, but right. I actually think it's not really spoken about a lot is the, is the idea right. of something being psychologically sustainable. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's very important with games when people associate or have associated games very often with burnout, right? Mm. The, the idea that you go to a studio, they expect 100, 110%. And really, you need to get used to the fact that having no life outside the studio at all is the only option available to you, right? And I, and I think one thing that really is really taught so many people is that psychological sustainability is important if ever you want to have a longer career in an industry that doesn't just last for a few months or a year. And those who come to games, they do so because they love games. I mean, there are so many other things that a game developer could be doing with their time, their talent, their knowledge. All the skills that you learn in games are eminently 
transferable to so many other fields that perhaps don't place the same demands upon you, and yet they choose games nonetheless. And for that reason, it is incredibly important that if you want to go on year after year making games, doing the thing that you love, being creative, having access to that creativity year after year, it's important to find psychological sustainability because, well, the other direction leads to misery and I know that I don't want that. If, if there's anything I want to take away from this is that your time and energy are non-refundable. Yeah, that, well, 100%, non-refundable, yeah. Shall we do the questionnaire? <laughs> Let's do that, yeah. What is your favorite word? Instigator. What is your least favorite word? Guys. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Humor. What turns you off? Self-righteousness. What is your favorite curse word? Um, I, I think it's just, I think it's just shit. What sound or noise do you love? Wind in the trees. What sound or noise do you hate? Babies crying. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Truck driver. What profession would you not like to do? Accountancy. And finally, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Would you like a glass of wine? <laughs>